If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to be opening to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 will be there in just a moment. Uh, again, what a joy to honor Rick and Lisa this morning and uh, for your mentorship, your friendship, and just the way that you've loved this church family. We're, we're very grateful. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget that I came into the preaching role some 11 years ago, and Rick kind of took me under his wing, and so he, he took me to a conference in Texas. And so we were in the airport, and uh, we were walking around, and Rick had gotten a little bit ahead of me, and uh, we passed these, uh, these two, two ladies, and he was about 15 feet ahead of me. And I come past these ladies, and I see them looking at Rick, and they say, ooh, there goes a tall drink of wine. <laughs> and, and I wanted to look at them and just say, I know his wife. You are going to want to stand down, okay? <laughs> but uh, we've had several memories together, served at several uh, graveside funerals together. We've been in hospital rooms together. Just the amount of ministry that uh, the Lord has blessed Rick and I to do together has just been a, a gift. I'm very grateful. So leaving can be hard. It can be difficult. It can be challenging. Uh, it can be tough. And such is the case with an example that we see uh, in Scripture. Uh, maybe it's leaving a job. Uh, maybe it's leaving a familiar circumstance, uh, or maybe it's leaving a family member. Uh, you've all probably experienced some form or fashion of, of leaving. Uh, as parents, uh, we drop off our young children, and what do they tend to start doing? They tend to start crying uh, when we drop them off, and, and we kind of have that tension of, of leaving them. Uh, and then. Students, when you get older, you drop your parents off, and then they start crying, right? Uh, <laughs> you've experienced that as well, as many of you are in the, the college dropping off stage. Uh, so we, we know just the reality of leaving can be tough. It can be, it can be hard. So you can imagine when Jesus says, I'm leaving, ten times in his farewell discourse, John 14, 15, and 16, known as Jesus' farewell discourse, ten times he says, hey, hey guys, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And they didn't understand what this meant. And so in John 16, 7, very truly I tell you, Jesus says, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I'm excited this fall I'm going to be uh, preaching a sermon series on the Advocate, uh, the Holy Spirit. And so I want to encourage you uh, to be praying about that as we launch into that series here in just a few weeks. Uh, I, I want us to, to focus in on this thought today that there was something about Jesus' leaving that was critical to the kingdom coming. There was something about Jesus' leaving that was critical to the kingdom coming. Uh, this series that we've been in, World Game Changer, has been challenging us to consider the implications of that which Jesus talked about more than anything else. He talked more about the kingdom of God than he did anything else recorded in Scripture. This was, was his focal point. This is what he kept coming back to. And how is Jesus' followers seeking first the kingdom gives way to the good life, the blessed life, not the easy life. Not the, the comfortable life, uh, not a meaningless life, but a life that is rooted in the beauty and goodness of God. 
And so I believe one of the most overlooked realities in Scripture that gives us assurance, that gives us peace, that gives us boldness, is the ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just think about your Christian walk. I mean, how often have you heard about, or if you're new to Christianity, or if you're still seeking what that means and what all that, that involves, how often have you heard this phrase, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? And rightfully so. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that these are matter, this is a matter of first importance. But we've, we've heard this phrase hopefully every week. Some of us, you know, hopefully reflect on this every day of our lives. But that next part, the ascension, if we're to be honest, if I'm to be honest, I mean, I haven't heard many sermons about the ascension of Jesus. I haven't preached many sermons, if any, about the ascension of Jesus. Or sometimes it gets lumped in with the resurrection, and so we just kind of assume that the two just go hand in hand. But I want us to consider today that the world game-changing reality of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so there's only really a few places in Scripture where we, where we read of the actual ascension of Jesus. And so it's recorded in a few places, uh, but its effects and its meaning are mentioned throughout the entire New Testament. I started looking into that this week, and I was I was just, my eyes just began to be opened at how often this is mentioned in the New Testament. Again, not, maybe not the word ascension, but just the effects or, or the, the, the meaning that it has in our lives today. So place number one is, is Mark 16, 19. Now this set of verses is not recorded in the earliest manuscripts. You'll usually see a little subtitle there in your Bibles that tell you that, but in Mark 16, 19, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, He was taken up into heaven. And then we get to Luke, Luke chapter 24 and verse 51, when He had led them into the vicinity of Bethany, He lifted His hands up and He blessed them, and while He was blessing them, He left them and was taken up into heaven. What I want to focus on for the next few moments is, is Luke volume 2. So in Luke volume 2, also known as the book of Acts, uh, we read about kind of Luke expounding upon what he left off with in Luke 24. And so he's talking about this, this scene in Acts 1-3 after his Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what? What he's been speaking about all along. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, they gathered around him, they gathered around Jesus, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And if you, you hear what the disciples are asking, they're, they're thinking again, they're continuing to think that, okay, now's the time that this, this earthly power is going to be restored so that we can overthrow the Romans and get on with this thing. This is kind of what, the way that they're thinking. But he says, not for you to know those times, verse 7. It's not for you to know how that's going to play out. In verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You will be witnesses to, to my kingdom in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this is a, a verse that has guided us as a church family for the better, better part of the last decade. Now, this was a passage that we began to explore, what, what is our Jerusalem, what is our Judea, what is our Samaria, what is our ends of the earth? And we've allowed this to, to be a, a formative passage for us. Verse 9, he's taken up 
before their very eyes. This is, this is the ascension. He's taken up before their very eyes. And then verse 10, look at it with me. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now, I want to pause. I'm, I'm not trying to knock the angels a little bit, but I mean, I, I'm just going to tell you, if, if we're in here today and one of y'all start rising up and, and going up in heaven, I mean, I'm, I'm staring, okay? I mean, the angel's like, Why, what are you looking at? You know, like, I, I'm going to be looking. All right, I'm, I'm going to see what's going on, okay? So that there's a little bit of, of, in this passage, there's a little bit of, okay, the angel's like, what are you looking at? You know, he's, he's gone. He's, but right after this moment, it says they joined together in an upper room and they prayed constantly. And Dr. Luke, being attention to detail like some of you doctors are, Dr. Luke records this little phrase in Acts chapter 1. He says that there were about 120 believers. Can you imagine? From the 12 to 120, and the 120 are going to be used to change the world. I look around this room and I think, man, what, what about this room? What about those joining us online? What about churches that are gathered all over this morning? Do we really view this, this life, do we really view this, this kingdom thing as something that, that God's going to use to, to change the world and, and use us to be those change agents in the world? Right after this moment, they had joined together and they prayed. Uh, earlier this year, uh, the UK threw this, this big celebration, once in a generation kind of celebration for Queen Elizabeth, 70 years on the throne. So this 96-year-old queen uh, was the first British monarch in history to reach what's known as the Platinum Jubilee. This is 70 years. Uh, Brother Rick had 32. Uh, she's, she's got 70, you know, years right now, you know, that she's served in this capacity. But catch this, Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne on February the 6th, 1952, following the death of her father, King George the Sixth. People all over the world are fascinated and intrigued by the grandeur, the ceremony. I mean, look at this. I mean, Cinderella ain't got nothing on this carriage, right? I mean, in the history that's associated with the royal family, yet most everyone knows that their royalty is about style and not substance. Because England is a constitutional monarchy. And so the executive power of the monarch is strictly limited by constitutional rules. In practice, kings or queens are not allowed to exercise real political authority. They must remain politically neutral. And so the role here is largely symbolic. They represent Britain on state visits and ceremonial occasions, and they serve as, as symbols of national unity. But here's where I'm going, and that is that the early Christians, if you, if you read the book of Acts, the early Christians believed that when Jesus ascended into heaven, that he had been installed and exalted as king. It was not merely symbolic. That he was king. So while the resurrection declares that Jesus is savior, his ascension declares that he is king. So I want you to track with me here. Out of all the verses in the Old Testament, 
the most frequently quoted verse in the Old Testament that is quoted in the New Testament. It's either quoted or it's alluded to more than any other verse. Do you know what that verse is? We have, I mean, I was kind of, again, eyes open this week when I was, when I was looking at all this. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the most quoted verse or most alluded to verse in the New Testament. And when it was originally written, this verse and the entire psalm originally served as a text for the installation of a king into office. One scholar notes that it was more than a position, it was a status in the very order of things that really endowed a person with identity and power. And that's exactly how the early Christians understood the ascended Christ kingly office when they quoted Psalm 110.1. His kingship was real. His kingship was powerful. His kingship was ultimate. This is how they viewed it. So look with me in Acts chapter 2, right after the dissension. If you have your Bibles open, just turn over to Acts chapter 2. During Peter's Pentecost sermon, we see in Acts 2, 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, addressed the crowd. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then he quotes the prophet Joel, and then he says, you put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross. This was God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. You put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. And then he quotes from Psalm 16. And then in verse 29 in Acts chapter 2, fellow Israelites, I can tell that you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you see now and here. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, here it is, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So why? Why is this so critical to us in 2022? Preacher, why are you talking so much about this ascension thing? With sin and with suffering, with pain and with broke, brokenness all around us, with evil all around us, injustice, all the things that are going on even in your personal life right now that you just can't reconcile. Like how can you stand up there and say that Jesus is reigning? How can you stand up here and say? That his rule and his reign is in effect right now. It's easy for us to push his kingship into the future. He's not really king now, but of course he will become king when he returns in the future. Anybody tracking with me? 
Do you see the tension? In his book, How God Became King, author N.T. Wright says this, the ascension for many people implies Jesus' absence, not his universal presence and sovereign rule. And it's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is the entirety of the New Testament writers that think that Jesus is already in charge of the world. Check out 1 Corinthians 15. Check out Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Check out Revelation 5, 6 through 14. That was understood by them all that God's kingdom was among us in the here and now. Jesus is already in charge of the world, and he's poured out his spirit. And the early church not only believed it, they lived it, and they knew who to call upon. They knew who to go to. They knew who held their lives together. Uh, one of my favorite stories uh, about this is a guy named Steve Winger from Lubbock, Texas. He was a student at Texas Tech. And he talks about his final semester at Texas Tech, had it, having saved his, his hardest and most difficult course for last. It was a course in logic. And so in, in, in the final exam of this final course, the professor just said straight up, this is going to be the hardest exam you've ever taken. I'm just going to tell you right now, this will be the hardest exam you've ever taken. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow you to bring one sheet of paper and anything that you can put on that one sheet of paper you can use it for the exam. And so all the students took the paper, they were cramming, like writing really small little notes all the way, I mean, just trying to fill up that page as much as they could. And on the day of the final exam, one of the students brought in a blank sheet of paper, put it next to his desk, invited his friend who was an advanced logic student to come and stand on that paper. right next to his desk. And during the entire exam, whispered answers to him. He was the only student that got an A on the exam, and the teacher couldn't do anything about it because he followed the rules. It's a silly story, but it's a reminder that he knew who to call. He knew who to call upon. He knew in that moment to, who to turn to. Remember in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, Lucy anx anxiously asked Mr. and Miss Beaver if Aslan, this lion that she had heard about, this lion that she had, had not yet met, just asked, okay, tell me, is this lion safe? To which Mr. Beaver responded, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he's good. What a wonderful description of Jesus. And I love how the beaver says he's the king, I tell you because his kingship has implications for our personal life. 
But it's also interesting how in Ephesians, Paul linked Christ's ascension and enthronement as king with the church. And so God raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.20, Paul declared. And then he added, he has put all things under his feet. He has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body. And so you say, well, well yes, Jesus is king of my life. And of course, Jesus is the head of the church, but that's where it stops, right? Herod and Pilate understood well that calling Jesus king had profound social and political ramifications. See Matthew chapter 2, see John chapter 18. And so did the Roman Caesars when the early Christians confessed the risen, ascended Christ as Lord and King because confessing Jesus as Lord and King meant that Caesar was not. Are you tracking with me? And this is where things begin to get unsafe. So Jesus is the king of my life, fine. Jesus is the king of the church, fine. Jesus is king overall. Now wait just a moment. The philosopher Frederick Nietzsche coined the French word resentment for the rehearsal of grievances to refer to political psychology driven primarily by anger Envy, hate, and revenge, resentment. What if instead of these things driving us to action, what if we began setting our minds where Christ is? Colossians 3.1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That in the midst of the conflict and upheaval around us, how might a greater certainty, a greater conviction, a greater awareness of that unseen reality, the throne where Christ the King is reigning and He's worshiped, shape our approach to the difficulties and uncertainties that we face in life? How might that shape the assurance of our salvation? Uh, one of the best Peanuts comic strips that I've seen is when Lucy says to Linus, hey, uh, look, look at all the rain around us. Do you see it? I mean, it, it, it looks like that <laughs> the, the whole earth is going to be flooded. To which Linus replies, well, in Genesis chapter 9, God said, that he would never flood the earth again. And so he, he gave us this, this symbol, this rainbow as a promise. To which Lucy replies, you've taken a great load off my mind. <laughs> to which Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. Don't you love, I mean, you would never see a comic strip like that these days. But what a beautiful thought. The sound theology has a way of reminding us of the truth. Some of you experienced the loss of loved ones. Some of you have experienced health situations. And really the, the word hard doesn't even describe the situation very well. Or maybe you have a loved one that has experienced a health concern. 
Uh, maybe you're a college student or a high school student or a middle school student and your, your mental health is nauseous <laughs> just because of all that has been unloaded on you the past few weeks as things have began to unfold. Maybe you're experiencing uh, depression or anxiety or maybe you, you've gotten just fed up at work and it's got you down. Maybe you're in a financial hiccup or situation right now that is, is you're struggling. In the words, of, uh, or the words of Charles Spurgeon, it's sweet to remember that the exaltation of Christ in heaven is a representative exaltation. His exaltation is our exaltation. He will give us to sit upon his throne even as he has overcome and is set down with his father on his throne. He has a throne, but he's not content with having a throne to himself. He cannot be glorified without his bride. Look up, believer, to Jesus now. We have Christ for our glorious representative in heaven's courts now. And so as we share in the communion meal this morning, I want us to focus on, yes, the death and the burial and the resurrection. But catch this. Let us also be reminded of Christ's ascension. If you did not receive a communion packet on your way in this morning, if you'll just raise your hand, we'll have a few folks that will come by and give you a packet. They'll be happy to place that in your hand. I want to encourage you as you receive your communion packet, if you'll take just a moment to, to hold it in your hand. This is not just another ritual that we'll go through and then move on with our day, but that we will allow this moment to shape and inform the rest of our weeks this week. The body and the blood of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we never have to wonder where Christ is. He is seated at your right hand. We don't have to beg him to come on the scene because he is present with us even when he seems most absent. As Paul said in his sermon on Mars Hill in Athens, he is not far away from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. This is more than a doctrine to be held, it is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day, even on the most difficult of days. So help us to seek him in the unlikely places this week. Thank you for the body of Christ given for us. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. The body of Christ given for you. Let's pray for the cup. So, Lord, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes.
And we give thanks that we do not place our hope in a dead Savior, but a risen one. And we're reminded this day that as we drink this cup, we're reminded of the ascension-shaped life that we now participate in. So, Lord, you are, you are working here. Use me. Use us. Do what you want to do through us to accomplish your purposes. And Lord, we pray that we do not get in the way of what you're doing. We confess our sin. And we are reminded that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His resurrection ensured our new life and His ascension gives us the assurance to be a people who serve a righteous King. So, Father, help us to be on mission for the sake of your glory. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. The blood of Christ given for you.